0: Section 37 of Passages from the Life of a Philosopher. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones in Benita Springs, Florida. Section 37 The Author's Further Contributions to Human Knowledge Part 2 Experiments in America. The letter which was sent to the United States was placed in the hands of the Coast Survey. The plan was highly approved, and Congress made a grant of $5,000 in order to try it experimentally. After a long series of experiments, in which its merits were severely tested, a report was made to Congress strongly recommending its adoption. I then received a very pressing invitation to visit the United States for the purpose of assisting to put it in action. It was conveyed to me by an amiable and highly cultivated person, the late Mr. Reed, professor of English literature at Philadelphia, who, on his arrival in London, proposed that I should accompany him on his return in October, the best season for the voyage, and in the finest vessel of their mercantile navy. I had long had a great wish to visit the American continent, but I did not think it worth crossing the Atlantic unless I could have spent a twelvemonth in America. Finding this impossible under the then circumstances, about a month before the time arrived, I resigned with great reluctance to the pleasure of accompanying my friend to his own country. The Author's Escape It was most fortunate that I was thus prevented from embarking on board the Arctic, a steamer of the largest class. Steaming at the rate of thirteen knots an hour over the banks of Newfoundland, during a dense fog, the Arctic was run into by a steamer of about half its size, moving at the rate of seven knots. The concussion was in this circumstance fatal to the larger vessel. This sad catastrophe was thus described by the brother of my lost friend. On the 20th of September, 1854, Mr. Reed, with his sister, embarked at Liverpool for New York in the United States steamship Arctic. Seven days afterward, at noon, on the 27th, when almost in sight of his native land, a fatal collision occurred, and before sundown every human being left upon the ship had sunk under the waves of the ocean. The only survivor, who personally acquainted with my brother, saw him about two o'clock p.m. after the collision, and not very long before the ship sank, sitting with his sister in the small passage aft of the dining-room they were tranquil and silent though their faces wore the look of painful anxiety they probably afterwards left this position and repaired to the promenade-deck for a selfish struggle for life with a helpless companion dependent upon him with a physical frame unsuited for such a strife and above all with a sentiment of religious resignation which taught him in that hour of agony even with the memory of his wife and children thronging in his mind, to bow his head in submission to the will of God. For such a struggle he was wholly unsuited, and his is the praise that he perished with the women and children. Quote. Occulting Light at Brussels In 1853 I spent some weeks at Brussels. During my residence in that city, a congress of naval officers from all the maritime nations assembled to discuss and agree upon certain rules and observations to be arranged for the common benefit of all. One evening I had the great pleasure of receiving the whole party at my house for the purpose of witnessing my occulting lights. The portable occulting light which I had brought with me was placed in the veranda on the first floor and then we went along the boulevards to see its effect at different distances and with various numerical symbols. On our return, several papers relating to the subject were lying upon the table. The Russian representative, Mr. Blank, took up one of the original printed descriptions and was much interested in it. On taking leave, he asked with some hesitation whether I would lend it to him for a few hours." I told him at once that if I possessed another copy I would willingly give it to him. But that not being the case, I could only offer to lend it. M. therefore took it home with him, and when I sat down to breakfast the next morning I found it upon my table. In the course of the day I met my Russian friend in the park. I expressed my hope that he had been interested by the little tract he had so speedily returned. He replied that it had interested him so much that he had sat up all night and copied the whole of it, and that his transcript and dispatch upon the subject was now on its way by the post to his own government. Several years after I was informed that occulting solar lights were used by the Russians during the siege of Sebastopol. Night Signals The system of occulting lights applies to with remarkable facility to night signals, either on shore or at sea. If it is used numerically, it applies to all the great dictionaries of the various maritime nations. I may here remark that there exists means by which all such signals may, if necessary, be communicated in cipher. SUN SIGNALS The distance at which such signals can be rendered visible exceeds that of any other class of signals by means of light during the irish trigonometrical survey a mountain in scotland was observed with an angular instrument from a field in ireland at the distance of one hundred and eight miles this was accomplished by stationing a party on the summit of the mountain in scotland with a looking-glass of about a foot square directing the sun's image to the opposite station No occultations were used, but if the mere had been larger, and occultation employed, the messages might have been sent, and the time of residence upon the mountain considerably diminished. When I was occupied with occulting signals, I made this widely known. I afterwards communicated the plan, during a visit to Paris, to many of my friends in that capital, and by request to the Minister of Marine. I have observed in the Comte-Rendu, that the system has to a certain extent been since used in the south of Algeria, where, during eight months of the year, the sun is generally unobscured by clouds as long as it is above the horizon. I have not, however, noticed in those communications to the Institute any reference to my own previous publication. Zenith Light Signals Another form of signal, although not capable of use at very great distances, may, however, be employed with considerable advantage under certain circumstances. Universality and economy are its great advantages. It consists of a looking-glass, making an angle of 45 degrees with the horizon, placed just behind an opening in a vertical board, this being stuck into the earth, the light of the sky in the zenith which is usually the brightest will be projected horizontally through the opening in whatever direction the person to be communicated with may be placed the person who makes the signals must stand on one side in front of the instrument and by passing his hat slowly before the aperture any number of times may thus express each unit's figure of his signal he must then leaving the light visible pause while he deliberately counts to himself 10. He must then, with his hat, make a number of occultations equal to the 10's figure he wishes to express. This must be continued for each figure in the number of the signal, always pausing between each during the time of counting 10. When the end of the signal is terminated, he must count 60 in the same manner, and if the signal he gave has not been acknowledged, he should repeat it until it has been observed. The same simple telegraph may be used in a dark night by substituting a lantern for the looking-glass. The whole apparatus is simple and cheap, and can be easily carried even by a small boy. I was led to this contrivance many years ago by reading an account of a vessel stranded within thirty yards of the shore. Its crew consisted of thirteen people, ten of whom got into the boat leaving the master, who thought himself safer in the ship, with two others of the crew. The boat put off from the ship, keeping as much out of the breakers as it could, and looking out for a favorable place for landing. The people on shore followed the boat for several miles, urging them not to attempt landing. But not a single word was audible by the boat's crew, who, after rowing several miles, resolved to take advantage of the first favorable lull. They did so. The boat was knocked to pieces and the whole crew were drowned. If the people on the shore could at that moment have communicated with the boat's crew, they could have informed them that, by continuing their course for half a mile further, they might turn into a cove and land almost dry. I was much impressed by the want of easy communication between stranded vessels and those on shore who might rescue them. Shipwreck Signals i can even now scarcely believe it credible that the very simple means i am about to mention has not been adopted years ago a list of about a hundred questions relating to directions and inquiries required to be communicated between the crew of a stranded ship and those on shore who wish to aid it would i am told be amply sufficient for such purposes now if such a list of inquiries were prepared and printed by competent authority any system of signals by which a number of two places of figures can be expressed might be used. This list of inquiries and answers ought to be printed on cards, and nailed up on several parts of every vessel. It would be still better, by conference with other maritime nations, to adopt the same system of signs and to have them printed in each language. A looking-glass, a board with a hole in it, and a lantern would be all the apparatus required. The lantern might be used for night, and the looking-glass for day signals. These simple and inexpensive signals might be occasionally found useful for various social purposes. Short Distance Signals Two neighbors in the country whose houses, though reciprocally visible, are separated by an interval of several miles, might occasionally telegraph to each other. If the looking glass were of large size, its light and its occultation might be seen perhaps from six to 10 miles and thus become by daylight a cheap guiding light through the channels and into harbors. It may also become a question whether it might not in some cases save the expense of buoying certain channels. For railway signals during the daylight, It might in some cases be of great advantage by saving the erection of very lofty poles carrying dark frames through which the light of the sky is admitted. Amongst my early experiments I made an occulting hand lantern with a shade for occulting by the pressure of the thumb and with two other shades of red and green glass. This might be made available for military purposes or for the police. Greenwich Time Signals it has been thought very desirable that a signal to indicate greenwich time should be placed on the start point the last spot which ships going down the channel on distant voyages usually sight the advantage of such an arrangement arises from this that chronometers having had their rates ascertained on shore may have them somewhat altered by the motions to which they are submitted at sea if therefore after a run of above 200 miles, they can be informed of the exact Greenwich time. The sea rate of their chronometers will be obtained. Of course, no other difficulty than that of expense occurs in transmitting Greenwich time by electricity to any points on our coast. The real difficulty is to convey it to the passing vessels. The firing of a cannon at certain fixed hours has been proposed, But this plan is encumbered by requiring the knowledge of the distance of the vessel from the gun and also from the variation of the velocity of the transmission of sound under various circumstances. During the night the flash arising from ignited gunpowder might be employed, but this in the case of rain or other atmospheric circumstances might be impeded. The best plan for night signals would be to have an occulting light which might be that of the lighthouse itself, or other specially reserved for the purpose. During the day, and when the sun is shining, the time might be transmitted by the occultations of reflected solar light, which would be seen at any distance the curvature of the earth admitted. The application of my zenith light might perhaps fulfill all the required conditions during daylight. I have found that, even in the atmosphere of London, an opening only five inches square can be distinctly seen and its occultations counted by the naked eye at the distance of a quarter mile. If the side of the opening were double the former, then the light transmitted to the eye would be four times as great and the occultations might be observed at the distance of one mile. The looking-glass employed must have its side nearly in the proportion of three to two so that one of five feet by seven and a half ought to be seen at the distance of about eight or nine miles. Geological Theory of Isothermal Surfaces During one portion of my residence at Naples, my attention was concentrated upon what, in my opinion, is the most remarkable building upon the face of the earth, the Temple of Serapis at Puzzole. In this inquiry, I profited from the assistance of Mr. Head, now the Right Honorable Sir Edmund Head, Bart, K.C.B., late Governor-General of Canada. An abstract of my own observations was printed in the Abstracts of Proceedings of the Geological Society, Volume 2, page 72. My friend's historical views were printed in the Transactions of the Antiquarian Society. Temple of Serapis It was obviously built at or above the level of the Mediterranean in order to profit by a hot spring which supplied its numerous baths. There is unmistakable evidence that it has subsided below the present level of the sea at least twenty-five feet, that it must have remained there during many years, that it then rose gradually up, probably to its former level, and that during the last twenty years it has been again slowly subsiding. The results of this survey led me in the following year to explain the various elevations and depressions on portions of the earth's surface at different periods of time, by a theory which I have called the theory of the earth's isothermal surfaces. I do not think the importance of that theory has been well understood by geologists who are not always sufficiently acquainted with physical science. The late Sir Henry de la Beche, perceived at an early period the great light of those sciences might throw upon his own favorite pursuit, and was himself always anxious to bring them to bear upon geology. I am still more confirmed in my opinion of the importance of the theory of isothermal surfaces in geology from the fact that a few years afterwards my friend Sir John Herschel arrived independently at precisely the same theory. I have stated this at length in the notes to the Ninth Bridgewater Treatise. Games of Skill A considerable time after the translation of Menebrea's memoir had been published, and after I had made many drawings of the analytical engine and all its parts, I began to meditate upon the intellectual means by which I had reached to such an advanced and even to such unexpected results. I reviewed in my mind the various principles which I had touched upon in my published and unpublished papers, and dwelt with satisfaction upon the power which I possessed over the mechanism through the aid of a mechanical notation. I felt, however, that it would be more satisfactory to the minds of others, and even in some measure to my own, that I should try the power of such principles as I had laid down, by assuming some question of an entirely new kind and endeavoring to solve it by the aid of those principles which had so successfully guided me in other cases. Games of skill can be played by an automaton. After much consideration, I selected for my test the contrivance of a machine that should be able to play a game of purely intellectual skill successfully, such as tit-tat-toe, drafts, chess, etc., I endeavored to ascertain the opinions of persons in every class of life and of all ages, whether they thought it required human reason to play games of skill. The most constant answer was in the affirmative. Some supported this view of the case by observing that, if it were otherwise, then an automaton could play such games. A few of those who had considerable acquaintance with mathematical science allowed the possibility of machinery being capable of such work, but they most stoutly deny the possibility of contriving such a machinery on account of the myriads of combinations which even the simplest games included on the first part of my inquiry i soon arrived at a demonstration that every game of skill is susceptible of being played by an automaton further consideration showed that if any position of the men upon the board were assumed whether that position were possible or impossible then if the automaton could make the first move rightly, he must be able to win the game, always supposing that, under the given position of the men, that conclusion were possible. Whatever move the automaton made, another move would be made by his adversary. Now this altered state of the board is one amongst the many positions of the men in which By the previous paragraph, the automaton was supposed capable of acting. Hence, the question is reduced to that of making the best move under any possible combinations of positions of the men. Now, several questions the automaton has to consider are of this nature. 1. Is the position of the men, as placed before him on the board, a possible position, that is, one which is consistent with the rules of the game? 2. If so, has Automaton himself already lost the game? 3. If not, then has Automaton won the game? 4. If not, can he win it at the next move? If so, make that move. 5. If not, could his adversary, if he had the move, win the game? If so, Automaton must prevent him, if possible. 7. If his adversary cannot win the game at his next move, automaton must examine whether he can make such a move that, if he were allowed to have two moves in succession, he could at the second move have two different ways of winning the game. And each of these cases failing, automaton must look forward to three or more successive moves. Now I have already stated that in the analytical engine, I had devised mechanical means equivalent to memory, also that I had provided other means equivalent to foresight, and that the engine itself could act upon this foresight. Number of the Combinations In consequence of this, the whole question of making an automaton play any game depended upon the possibility of the machine being able to represent all the myriads of combinations relating to it. Allowing one hundred moves on each side for the longest game of chess, I found that the combinations involved in the analytical engine enormously surpassed any required, even by the game of chess. Game of Tit-Tat-Toe As soon as I had arrived at this conclusion, I commenced an examination of a game called Tit-Tat-Toe, usually played by little children. It is the simplest game with which I am acquainted. Each player has five counters, one set marked with a plus, the other with a zero. The board consists of a square divided into nine smaller squares, and the object of each player is to get three of his own men in a straight line. One man is put on the board by each player alternately. In practice, no board is used, but the children draw upon a bit of paper or on their slate. a figure likely any of the following the successive moves of the two players may be represented as follow. And here a diagram is presented. In this case, plus wins at the seventh move. The next step I made was to ascertain what number of combinations were required for all the possible variety of moves and situations. I found this to be comparatively insignificant. I therefore easily sketched out mechanism by which such an automaton might be guided. Hitherto I had considered only a philosophical view of the subject, but a new idea now entered my head which seemed to offer some chance of enabling me to acquire the funds necessary to complete the analytical engine. It occurred to me that if an automaton were made to play this game, it might be surrounded with such attractive circumstances that a very popular and profitable exhibition might be produced i imagined that the machine might consist of the figures of two children playing against each other accompanied by a lamb and a cock that the child who won the game might clap his hands whilst the cock was crowing that the child who was beaten might cry and wring his hands whilst the lamb began bleeding i then proceeded to sketch various mechanical means by which every action could be produced. These, when compared with those I had employed for the analytical engine, were remarkably simple. A difficulty, however, arose of a novel kind. It will have been observed in the explanation I gave of the analytical engine, that cases arose in which it became necessary, on the occurrence of certain conditions, that the machine itself should select one out of two or more distinct modes of calculation. The particular one to be adopted could only be known when those calculations on which the selection depended had been already made. Difficulty arising from choice The new difficulty consisted in this, that when the automaton had to move, it might occur that there were two different moves, each equally conducive to his winning the game. In this case, no reason existed within the machine to direct his choice unless, also, some provision were made that the machine could attempt two contradictory motions. The first remedy I devised for this defect was to make the machine keep a record of the number of games it had won from the commencement of its existence. Whenever two moves, which we may call A and B, were equally conducive to winning the game, the automaton was made to consult the record of the number of games it had won. If that number happened to be even, he was directed to take the course A. If it were odd, he was to take course B. If there were three moves equally possible, the automaton was directed to divide the number of games he had won by three. In this case, the numbers 0, 1, or 2 might be the remainder, and the machine was directed to take the course A, B, or C accordingly. It is obvious that any number of conditions might be thus provided for. An inquiring spectator who observed the games played by the automaton might watch a long time before he discovered the principle upon which it acted. It is also worthy of remark how admirably this illustrates the best definitions of chance by the philosopher and the poet. Quote. Chance is but the expression of man's ignorance. Laplace. All chance. Design. Ill understood. Pope. Close quote. Exhibition of Automaton. Having fully satisfied myself of the power of making such an automaton, the next step was to ascertain whether there was any probability, if it were exhibited to the public, of its producing, in a moderate time, such a sum of money as would enable me to construct the analytical engine. A friend to whom I had at an early period communicated the idea entertained great hopes of its pecuniary success. When it became known that an automaton could beat not merely children, but even Papa and Mama at a child's game, it seemed not unreasonable to expect that every child who heard of it would ask Mama to see it. On the other hand, every Mama and some few Papas who heard of it would doubtless take their children to so singular and interesting a sight. I resolved, on my return to London, to make inquiries as to the relative productiveness of the various exhibitions of recent years, and also to obtain some rough estimate of the probable time it would take to construct the automaton, as well as some approximation to the expense. It occurred to me that if half a dozen were made, they might be exhibited in three different places at the same time. Each exhibitor might then have an automaton in reserve in case of accidental injury. On my return to town, I made the inquiries I had alluded to, and found that the English machine for making Latin verses, the German talking machine, as well as several others, were entire failures in a pecuniary point of view. I also found that the most profitable exhibition, which had occurred for many years, was that of the little dwarf General Tom Thumb. On considering the whole question, I arrived at the conclusion that to conduct the affair to a successful issue, it would occupy so much of my own time to contrive and execute the machinery, and then to superintend the working out of the plan, that even if successful in point of pecuniary profit, it would be too late to avail myself of the money that's acquired to complete the analytical engine. Problem of the Three Magnetic Bodies The problem of the three magnetic bodies which has cost such unwearied labor to so many of the highest intellects of this and the past age is simple compared with another which is opening upon us. We now possess a very extensive series of well-recorded observations of the positions of the magnetic needle in various parts of our globe during about thirty years. CAUSES OF MAGNETIC CHANGES Certain periods of changes of about ten or eleven years are said to be indicated as connected with changes in the amount of solar spots, but the inductive evidence scarcely rests upon three periods, and it seems more probable that these effects arise from some common cause. 1. It has been long known that the earth has at least two, if not more, magnetic poles. 2. It is probable, therefore, that the sun and moon are also have several magnetic poles. 3. In 1826, I proved that when a magnet is brought into proximity to a piece of matter capable of becoming magnetic, the magnetism communicated by it requires time for its full development in the body magnetized. Also that when the influence of the magnet is removed, the magnetized body requires time to regain its former state. This being the case, it is required, having assumed certain positions for the poles of these various magnetic bodies, to calculate the reciprocal influences in changing the positions of those poles on other bodies. The development of the equations representing these forces will indicate cycles which really belong to the nature of the subject. The comparisons of a long series of observations with recorded facts will ultimately enable us to determine both the number and position of those poles upon each body. Electric Changes Electricity possesses an analogous property with respect to time being required for its full action. If the bodies of our system influence each other electrically, other developments will be required and other cycles discovered. When the equations resulting from the actions of these causes are formed, and means of developing them are arranged, the whole of the rest of the work becomes under the domain of machinery. End of Section 37 The Author's Further Contributions to Human Knowledge Part 2